0: You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all.
1: How many threads connect the past and present? We go to France in the 17th century and back to 1973 in Hollywood. Out of the darkness into the light. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. On this episode, a conversation with Brown McShay, author of Light Touches. Then after the break, Robert Hoffler stops by to talk about his book, The Way They Were. Well, this is going to be a very, very eclectic episode. And I want to welcome to the program my first guest, Brown McShay. She has a B.A., and M.H.T.S. at Harvard University, and her Ph.D. at Yale University. And Rowan, Larry Davidson here. Welcome to the program.
2: Hi there, Larry. Thanks so much for having me on.
1: So how long have you been living in New York?
2: Well, I've been living here, I've lived here twice. This is my second stint. Uh, I, I So this is technically my fifth year living in Manhattan, but two separate periods. <laughs> so, I, so, re- I was born in New York.
1: Too. I want to reference somebody that I have <laughs> great respect for and I had many interviews in the past. His name is Pete Hamill. Mm-hmm. And Pete Hamill said to me, mm-hmm. I write what I want to read. Is that true about you in terms of your mm-hmm. new book, lot Duchess?
2: Yes, I would say that. I, I, I had a my advisor at Yale, wonderful man, Carlos Herr, told me early on, you know, he had a lot of pressures as a grad student to write a certain way. He said, write the book that you want. Don't listen to the other voices. And I'm always glad to have listened to that advice. So, yeah, I I write in order to explain things to myself, too.
1: <laughs> so that being said, who is this book for? Because this is a very challenging book. It's I think it's for historians, but I'm curious about your perspectives because there are certain people in your world that welcome this book, mm-hmm. spoke very highly of it. So who is your audience but- besides yourself in a sense?
2: Right. Well, I've I've already had some people read it who are not historians, including rather ordinary people, uh, a couple housewife friends. Uh, my father is a construction worker. Other other people, um, non academics, who tell me that it reads more like a novel than a typical history book. So it, it is long. It's full of a lot of French names. But I I really wrote this as a crossover book. I am an academic uh, by training. I'm an historian. But I this story I wanted to use all my research training and and uh, historical narrative building experience and also to tell a story that was readable so i'm hoping it's a crossover book that scholars and non-specialists will appreciate it so far that seems to be the case with some responses i've had
1: so i want to share one more op- observations earlier this month mm-hmm. in the month of march there was a major conference William, women's international day in dubai and on the panel mm-hmm. was billy mm-hmm. king he said something very interesting she said, mm-hmm. in order to be comfortable, you have to be uncomfortable first. So during the process of this mm-hmm. reading of the book, were you ever uncomfortable doing your research and trying to decide where you're mm-hmm. going
2: to go? Yes, uh, in different ways. Um, so early on, the, the genesis of the project was more of an academic um, consideration of the role of maybe a group of Catholic laywomen in the 17th century and, and their contributions to religious institutions. And um I also er, early on, I I I was for some reason feeling like writing a, a more general narrative and a writing a real story, writing a biography was not something that some of someone in my early stage as a historian should be doing yet. I I had sort of voices in my life telling me not necessarily to go that direction. So I I did feel torn at first about what sort of book to write. And I, I made the commitment early on, even before I had a a sense that I had sufficient sources to do this uh, as well as, as I believe it turned out that, that that, um, I made a commitment to just try to just throw myself into a biography project, even though that was a bit outside the box of what I had been trained to do. So, so
1: I want to share another observation from the Christian Mm -hmm. cleric. Richard John. Mm -hmm. And he said, quote, culture Mm -hmm. is the root of politics. Religion is the root of culture. What was he addressing?
2: Mm -hmm. I think actually I have uh, some connection to the magazine first things that he, that he founded. Um, I mean, I think culture, culture shapes, attitudes, ideas, whether you're talking about artistic culture, literary culture, um, other, other kinds. And it, It sort of shapes people for how they will act in public life, but also I think, um, you know, political institutions, also religious institutions. They also shape people. They shape the imagination, and they they affect uh, what sort of cultural output we produce. So I I mean, I'm not a, I haven't written on this subject in a a, on a more abstract level, Um, but I, I I am fascinated as a scholar as well as a writer in describing. Uh, with the with the very close relationship of religion, culture, politics, how they're interwoven, and, and sometimes when we try to distinguish all these things from each other, especially in a period like the 17th century, we end up losing uh, something bigger than the sum of its parts. So um, certainly the culture in which my subject lived in, religious belief practice animated a great deal, but also people's experience of religion was, was highly shaped by the times they lived in and the institutions around them.
1: So let's not so. bury the lead. The title is called La Duchesse. Mm-hmm, sure. The subtitle is Cardinal mm-hmm. Richelieu's forgotten heiress who shaped the fate mm-hmm. of Europe. Who was she?
2: Of uh, France. Of uh, France. Of uh,
1: France. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, her, so her name, uh, so La Duchesse, the French word for Duchess, um she was a woman. She lived from 1604 to 75. She was the niece of Cardinal Richelieu, who was the prime minister of France, first minister of state to King Louis the Um He was... A churchman, but also one of the most politically savvy figures in Europe, and he's kind of a standout figure in European history at the time. He kind of dramatically affected the French state, centralized power, the monarchy, and tons of things have been written about him. But for some reason, um, something that was well known before the French Revolution, it was forgotten after. More or less, uh, his one of his main right hands was his niece. Was this young woman who he? kind of mentored politically. He bequeathed a great portion of his monumental wealth, also his political network, uh, to her when he died in 1642. And she ended up having this very unusual role for a non-royal woman in French political life, cultural life. Uh, She was a major financier in the period. Uh, she was really one of the most powerful women in Europe, I would say. And she, she dramatically impacted French life. And, um, uh, partly as Richelieu's heiress, but also in her own ways that she she went forward with after he died. And um, for some reason, she was forgotten in modern times. And I I, I tend not to kind of want to overstress this, but I, I, I do have a feeling that had her brother, Francois, who was a bit of a disaster and whom Richelieu had wanted to be his main heir, had he, had he accomplished half of what she did, uh, he might have been remembered more as the Duke de Richelieu. There might have been more monuments to him over time. So...
1: So there's something that I call the dustbin of history. It's almost lost and found. Joan of Arc we know about. Mm-hmm. Marie Antoinette we know about. And mm-hmm. now a TV series is mm-hmm. going to be following her story. So mm-hmm. why was this woman, as you described, was so powerful mm-hmm. in her timeframe mm-hmm. forgotten? And how did you resurrect her? How much research do you have to do to, to find her?
2: Yeah, well, I think there are maybe two main reasons she was forgotten. Um Period, I mean, once the period she lived in gets further away in time, it's natural that the most famous people, like her uncle, are going to eclipse her in in memory, right? Um, But she also, because she couldn't inherit public office, she could not be the actual prime minister of the country. Uh, A lot of her power and influence was informal and not always in highly institutionalized, recognized form. So uh, the way in which history has tended to be told the various projects institutions that she herself was a driving force behind, um, scholars of those institutions and, um, uh, events tended just as, as many histories do to prioritize people in official positions and, and kind of clergymen and statesmen and others who were involved. And she and some other women actually, uh, Tend to, they tended to sort of get slowly written out of some of these stories. and um, But also another reason, some of the uh, palaces, some of the properties she owned, which were truly stunning, uh, her her Chateau de Roy uh, west of Paris was very much admired by Louis Fourteenth. He would scamper about the grounds as a toddler and a, a, right. a young child. Right. He got some of his ideas for Versailles from this palace. Those Some of those buildings that she owned and that Richelieu had owned were actually torn down after the French Revolution so the the French Revolutionary rupture uh some of the physical remains of her her legacy disappeared and I think that added to her being forgotten um and uh, enough survived very much associated with Richelieu himself that um that of course he's very well remembered but um his relationship with his niece was uh it was remembered but the novelist Alexander Dumas uh, kind of dramatized it he He used rather negative portrayals of her from the political press of the time. Um, And then there was a biographer in the 19th century, a very pious French aristocrat who kind of whitewashed some of her story. So I, I had some, there were some ways in which her story had survived in kind of old French texts and also in the footnotes of different scholarly discussions of various things, so I had I had to kind of piece together, I found enough about her that I realized there was a story there, um, but then I had to kind of go to France. I spent a number of years, mostly summers, going to archives. I went to Italy and Rome. There were some archives. I, I I spent a number of years just collecting everything I could, letters, contracts, um, things that, that she was associated with. Um, and then also there's a tremendous digital uh, source record these days that I have access to that... 19th century biographer did not. So, you know, at my fingertips are all these early printed sources that I can read online, memoirs of people who knew her, and you can kind of quickly search her. I, I, the, the source base ended up being dramatically bigger than I was even hoping for. And this is despite the fact that some of her letters she burned. So there are some secrets in her life that she, she buried uh, that I was not able to talk about. <laughs> so, so let's so. follow
1: up on that word secrets. The mm-hmm. writer... Gabriel Garcia Marquez says, we have three mm-hmm. lives, a public life, a private life, and a secret mm-hmm. life. There's a scene in the book where Cardinal mm-hmm. Richel is dying, and he whispers into mm-hmm. Marie's ear. Was he sharing his personal secrets, or what was he telling her at that point as he's about to pass away?
2: I mean, it's unclear. We can never quite know, um, but— I, I can surmise based on circumstantial evidence. Um, I suspect it had something to do with the legacy he was about to bequeath to her. I don't know to what extent she was aware of how much he'd be giving to her when he died. He did say some things. There there were witnesses when he died. So they know that he said loud enough for people to hear that she was the one person Alive in the world that he he truly loved. Um, he had lost a number of loved ones in the past. So his affection for her was vocally expressed in the room out loud. Um, but he, according to the sources we have, he said something and she burst out crying and left. And I suspect it had something to do with either he knew the time was fast coming or it had something to do with the legacy, the burden he was about to put on her shoulders uh, to kind of take on fully his, his legacy. So I just want
1: to switch gears Mm -hmm. for a minute, and I find this very Mm -hmm. interesting for anybody that puts the time in to read the books. Uh, Mention Lee, who wrote Pachinko, who I love as a writer, said, I make a lot of demands of myself. Therefore, I make a lot of demands for the people who are going to read my books. Mm -hmm. So let's go back Mm -hmm. to you a little bit. I think it's really important for People that read your books, learn a little more about you. Mm-hmm. So take us back sure. in, in your family tree. Where, where are you from and okay. how did you grow up? Give us some insights, how you became who you are today. Uh,
2: well, people sometimes ask me if I'm French because I've written now two books on French history. I, as far as I know, I have no French ancestry. Right. Um, I, I was born in actually Queens, New York. My parents are rather ordinary um, Irish Catholic people. Uh, people that grew up in the same neighborhood in Queens. Uh, my grandparents, all from New York City, mostly Irish. Um, so I grew up in a, you know, pretty uh, modest home. I went to public schools. I somehow got into Harvard, and and that sort of changed my life a bit because it gave me opportunities that um, I actually was resistant to. I was kind of afraid to leave home, go to Harvard, believe it or not. Um, I always loved history. My, my parents sort of filled our house with history books and other things and I so I I just had this driving interest in the past from childhood and so it it wasn't even a question I would study history when I got to Harvard but I it was not on my horizon I didn't know any professors I didn't know people who did such things for living um my dad as I mentioned was a construction worker um so I it was not till the end of college, I was all ready to go to law school, um, that one of my professors encouraged me, you know, you might consider going to graduate school in history, um, cause you have some skill in this. And I, I kind of, uh, I was a little afraid of that actually at first, but then I, I kind of plunged into it and I did go to graduate school. I got a master's degree first in religious studies. And right. the reason I did that, um, was to kind of get my feet a little wet in grad school. And I had for some reason not studied the history of religion. I had sort of kept religious questions very separate from my academic studies, even though religion interested me a lot. Um, and so I did a history of Christianity degree at Harvard Divinity School before starting the PhD at Yale. And that actually that time at um, Harvard Divinity School, I was studying history, but it, but it was in very religiously informed discussions with various scholars of different backgrounds and um, it kind of helped crystallize the path I wanted to go forward. I wanted to become a historian of religion and culture in Europe. Um, and that's, that's how I, that's where I ended up. So it's not, it was not a so path I could have predicted or it made my parents a little nervous here and there. Cause they, they had hoped I'd become a lawyer and make a lot of money. So. <laughs>
1: well, I, I have two lawyers, two lawyers in the family. We don't need any more lawyers. <laughs> okay. I think you chose the right path. <laughs> okay. A big picture in my mind, how much of this, This book is about the separation of church and state. And the reason why I say that, if I can be political for a second, in this country is supposed to be a separation of church and state. Now I see what's Mm -hmm. happening. That separation is getting narrower and narrower in terms of religious communities, evangelicals in this country. So in those days, how important was if there was a separation of church and state or did they meld together? Because I look what's happening today and I see that separation not as far apart as it should be?
2: Well, I mean, that's a, I would say looking at the period I study, the separation is still dramatically uh, present in a way. The period that I study, there was certainly a distinction between church and state, um, that these were distinct spheres, but the idea that they should be separate was really, that, that would be considered a very radical notion that only a few Religious dissenters in Europe at the time would have supported certain radical Anabaptists. Uh, um, so, I mean, this is long before, I mean, the United States is really the first nation founded really promoting the idea uh, in, in the revolutionary period. So this is long before that. And there, um, France in particular, it's it's officially a Catholic country in the 17th century, as it was for centuries, uh, there was a a strong Protestant minority. Many of the nobles were Protestant, Um, but for at least a period, they worked out a kind of relationship with the crown and they were serving in public offices until later on the 17th century. Um, There there was actually a period of more persecution of Protestants later on uh, after this pretty dreadful period of religious warfare. This is before Marie's time in my book. Um, Anyway, so there. The crown of France, the the political authorities, actually had a lot of say over the church. So the choice of bishops, for example, uh, the papacy kind of tolerated uh, that the crown of France would choose bishops. um, And Marie, as the advisor to the prime minister, who's the advisor to the king, actually from quite a young age, sometimes had input on who would be chosen for high-level bishoprics in France and mission settings. Um. Many of the people kind of financing the church, churches, uh, institutions, are also financing governmental offices. Uh, th- there's a, a level of comfort that these things can be mixed together, certainly among the, the political class of the country, um, more so than sometimes the clergy liked, I would point out. So some of the clergymen with whom this duchess and others worked uh, didn't necessarily like that sometimes they were asked to do kind of secular duties in their, in their positions, uh, along with, uh traditional religious ecclesiastical duties. So, so yeah, it's a very different world from, uh, the United States today, the, the, the way the United States was founded. And, and it, it my, my hope is I'm trying to just, um, I don't make a statement about like, I, I don't have, I'm a historian looking at this period. I, I don't have any desire to see this close marriage of church and state resurrected, um, that's, that's not one of my goals in life, um, but, but you know, some readers interested in contemporary church state debates, uh, they might at least find a kind of different sort of canvas <clears throat> to put their own thinking uh, against, a uh, sort of foil for their own thinking in my book.
1: So is it fair to say, if I break the book down into two parts, and, and that's really very mm-hmm. simplistic, quite honestly,
2: mm-hmm.
1: that there's two parts to real life early Mm -hmm. years when the cardinal was still alive Mm -hmm. and then after he passed away Mm -hmm. her life changed dramatically she had supporters but she also had some very famous enemies is that true Mm -hmm.
2: yes and um yeah so i i actually i don't think that's simplistic what you said because i broke the book down that way too i i make the sort of part one and part two are before his will is read and then after the will is read um and and these i think she herself probably saw her life in these two major uh, epochs, kind of. So, once she was Richelieu's heiress, and Richelieu himself was no longer in power, there are powerful families in France that uh, strongly resented the the influence that the Richelieu family had gotten in political life, and some other kind of newer families or less uh, families of less exalted noble lineage. Um, and so she had enemies. There were people who, after he died, probably wished to see her and her relatives killed. I mean, this was a dangerous time. Um, she managed to uh, she managed to secure a, a pretty close position in, in the regency government of Anne of Austria, the mother of Louis XIV. She was governing on behalf of her son, the future son King. And one of the enemies that Marie makes, which she does it very subtly. It's it's actually not public. I really you, you don't see public discussions of this and sources. It's, it's mainly in the letters of, of the main enemy. This is Cardinal Jules the another cardinal minister, a successor to, to Richelieu as prime minister. He was Queen Anne's advisor. He's Italian born. He had tremendous power at the Regency court. And then also early on in Louis XIV's personal reign. And, um, He himself describes Marie in some of his letters as his most dangerous enemy at court because of the the sort of private influence she has over a tremendous uh, number of people at court. And she seems to have been behind, and I narrate this in detail, there were efforts to get Mazarin uh, out of the government entirely. And and she she was behind some of these efforts um, to kind of push him out of French political life. Um, And I don't know if she saw herself as potentially de facto should have been something like the prime minister to the queen. I mean, she, there's no public trail that she believed a woman should have that role, but she, she certainly was playing to some degree, such a role in, in certain regards in terms of the amount of clout she had at court uh, for many years after Richelieu's death. Um, and she had a network of noble friends clergymen others men and women um so religious people she, uh, she had a sort of um she could influence many different parts of French political and social life uh for various ends she learned she learned this from a master Richelieu himself and and um one of the things he gave her when he died was access to most of his political papers so I assumed going into this that such papers would have been bequeathed to the crown that, that they would have, been readily available to someone like Cardinal Mazarin when he's in office, but Mazarin actually for would have had to actually ask Marie for access to some of Richelieu's right, right. papers when he was in office. So, so she actually um, she knew a lot of people's secrets. She knew a lot of things that most most mortals in the even high up in French government did not did not know.
1: So let's so. reset. This is the podcast Artful Periscope. Sure. I'm Larry David, my guest is Browning McShea. We're having a fascinating conversation. She's carrying me very, very well because my knowledge is nowhere near hers. But I want to refer refer to chapter 26. The chapter is called Across the Atlantic. This Mm -hmm. fascinated me because we think of this being centric to France. She reached out to Mm -hmm. North America. I knew nothing Mm -hmm. about this. So share the genesis of chapter 26 because this is a fascinating sure. story
2: yeah, and actually that's actually how I discovered her in the first place because my first book was on Jesuit missionaries in colonial North America i I did my my research as a graduate student was on French missionary and colonial activity in North America I wanted to know more of the French backstory of the French presence in North America and um i I realized that some of there were some powerful Lay people. I'm using that term because I'm looking at the Catholic uh, world at the time, um, including women who sponsored institutions in colonial North America. She was the foundress of the first charitable hospital um, north of Mexico. Uh, this is in 1637, um, and she she sent she sent nuns from kind of an innovative nursing order. Um, Augustinian women from France to staff this hospital. And she wanted it to cater to Native Americans, who many of whom were suffering from smallpox, unfortunately brought to the New World by Europeans. It was there when the French arrived. So the French didn't have scientific knowledge of that. Um, So this hospital was founded uh, as part of the Catholic mission, but she had kind of a more social charitable orientation uh, when she looked at mission work, which was kind of advanced for its time. And then startlingly, I actually noticed she she had a hand in early French Catholic missions in South and Southeast Asia, and Madagascar, in Tunisia, in Algeria, uh, in other parts of the world. This is a period where the French are just beginning to expand commercially and colonially. They're trying to catch up with Spain and Portugal. And Spain and Portugal actually have this monopoly on founding missions that the papacy had given its blessing to since the 15th century, uh, since the time of Columbus. Um, And the French are trying to sort of cut into this. And she very kind of smartly negotiates with the Pope. So the Popes at this point want to start reining in all Catholic missions and put them directly under Roman authority, papal authority. But You know she has this practical sense um and she puts this she and others put this before the pope uh you know we can't really start breaking up this monopoly of spanish and portuguese missions if you don't let the french kind of in let let us do our thing for a while and and run some missions into the world so she literally sponsors um some of the first french overseas bishoprics in mission territories so she kind of she owns uh, several missions financially in Southeast Asia and also North Africa and um, she she had a very global uh for the time a, a global interest that I uh, I don't really see among any other nobles uh, so uh, in her context unless they're kind of members of the royal family or something so um, she she was kind of a pioneer in this regard, you know, whether regardless of what people think about missions themselves, you right. know, that's right. uh, these are kind of uh, her, her sort of global entrepreneurial activity uh, on behalf is, is rather kind of striking to see, so especially I'll, for a woman.
1: In the time we mm-hmm. have left remaining,
2: mm-hmm.
1: thank you so much for your time. There's so much more to explore. So mm-hmm. If sure. you want to come back, feel sure. free. I want to get personal. Mm-hmm. I did an interview okay. about mm-hmm. Josephine Baker. Fascinating woman. Mm-hmm. She mm-hmm. is buried in honor in the Pantheon in Paris because mm-hmm. of what she did mm-hmm. for France. Um, she was actually a spy during the war. Mm-hmm. A very famous, obviously, mm-hmm. entertainer. You, and this is in your afterward. you went back mm-hmm. to Paris to find Marie's grave. How close did you mm-hmm. get to finding it?
2: Well, without giving too much of my afterward away, because I want people to get the book, obviously, uh, La Duchesse, um, I was startled to find out, uh, number one, she asked to be buried in a Carmelite convent. She had a close relationship with Carmelite nuns when she was young, and she maintained this relationship her whole life. She and some of her other noble friends uh, were buried in the crypt of this convent, including some very famous noble women of the court that are better remembered than she is. Um, and this convent, uh, was an active convent. I think through the 19th century, there was a period of, uh, it was empty during the French revolutionary period, but then it was, um, not used anymore and it got bulldozed in the early 20th century. So there are high rise apartment buildings there. And, um, when I realized this, I, I, like there's, as far as I know, I, I couldn't find anyone in Paris if they knew of some way to access the crypt from some other way. Um, I, I went to the, this sort of building where th- at the time there was uh, actually ironically a Christian bookstore in the first floor. Um, and I, for some, I, I wanted to just go there and just pay my respects, you know, and even leave a flower on the sidewalk and, um, to my I was startled and a clergyman came out and asked me what I was doing. And he showed me that inside the building was still some of the preserved stone of the convent. Right. And he took me down to the basement of the building. Um, so I didn't see the crypt, but I got as close to it as I think you humanly can. Uh, there might be some other passageway, some other neighboring building in this part of Paris. So maybe if someone reads the book uh, and they know of some secret, they'll they'll let me know. Um but yeah there's no monument to her and even her home for many years the petit luxembourg uh, is where the president of the french senate is based so there's a little plaque about its history um right near the french senate building the the luxembourg palace and um there's just um even the, the sort of memory of her importance in that building has been a bit kind of muted over time um so I'm, I'm hopeful my book is not translated into French yet. I hope it will be soon. Uh, and I, I I made some wonderful French contacts while working on this. I, I got a private tour of the Petit Luxembourg in Paris, which is a tremendous uh, honor for me. So I got to go into her home and kind of look out the window and see how things looked from her perspective. Um, so that was a great honor. But uh, yeah, I'm hoping maybe the book will revive some memory and there'll be some... Uh, some remembrance her of her in some way down the road, uh, more publicly visible.
1: Before we let you go, I'm assuming you're going to do a lot more interviews and you've done some already. Is there a question mm-hmm. that should be asked that hasn't been asked yet?
2: Oh, gosh, I feel like I'm on the spot. Um, I can't think, Not one, one is not coming to mind. I feel like you, you asked a good number of uh, interesting questions here, so... Um, I do. I do want to underscore again. The book is. I think it's very readable. So that if you can get past the French names, it's. It, there's a lot of research in it, but it's. It's. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful people will give it a give it a try. Not just to encounter this remarkable woman, but I think the world she lived in is fascinating. It's both very similar to our times in some ways and very very different. And I think that mix uh, can can be beneficial for readers because it, it can sort of help you think about your own times in new ways. So
1: that's very well said. Brian McShea, thank, thank you. you so much. We learned a lot. It, I I didn't want to throw you off. Yes, I said it's a book for academics, also a book for people in the religious mm-hmm. world, but it's a book for people just want to learn about the past and history because there's so much we don't know about our past mm-hmm. and the past beyond our very narrow borders but separated by mm-hmm. the Pacific and the Atlantic. And you did that so, well. And women's so well. history. And women's and, history. And, women's. and it's Women's <laughs> History Month, correct? So everything's yes. timed out well. So, Brown, thank you so much for spending some time with us.
2: Thank you so much, Larry. I really appreciate it. Thank
1: you. Uh, after the break, we're going to move ahead and talk about The Making of the Way We Were with Robert Hoffler. We'll be right
0: back. Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com.
1: Hi, I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome back to the podcast, Artful Periscope, Segment 2. My guest, Robert Hoffler, is the author of The Way They Were. He is the lead theater critic for The Wrap. In 2020, he received the award for Best Theater Reviews from the L.A. Press Club. And Robert, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So this is my initial takeaway. This is my frustration. Bear with me. There are 17 chapters in this book. I think each chapter from 1 to 17 could be a standalone interview. They are all so, so Interesting. So I apologize. We don't have 17 hours, but if we did, th- this this is a whole series I could do just based on that book. So once again, thank you so much for joining the conversation.
3: Well, oh, thank you. I wasn't expecting that to go in that direction, but anyway. All right. Well, thank
1: maybe you. you'll go uphill downhill from here. I, I don't know. <laughs> so there's a, there is this fam- very famous phrase, especially in the world of making legislation. It's making sausages. How much of this book is the movie version of Making Sausage because you take us behind the scenes, the good, the bad, and the indifferent. And I really appreciate that because I'm a big movie buff.
3: Well, people ask me why I did this movie and people come back that uh, they don't believe it's a great movie, but I'm interested in the movie because I find it and. Interesting movie. Uh, and I find the backstory of it very interesting. I find, you know, there was an hour of the movie that was cut out that had to do with the blacklist. And the blacklist was very interesting to me um, because I grew up in the 50s in a very conservative family. And I had asked my mother and father at one time if they supported Senator Joe McCarthy. And they, they, they said, yes, but we didn't agree with his methods. But I have a feeling at the time that Joe McCarthy was at the height of his power, my mother and father supported him completely. And so I, I remember seeing the movie in 1973 when it first came out. And I was very interested in that because I was like a lot of kids who are raised by conservative parents. You're conservative and then you become liberal. And if you're raised by liberal parents, you're liberal and then you become conservative. So I was very interested. And in 1973, this story was much more controversial than we might think it was Uh, Ron Reagan was governor of California, Ron Reagan in 1947, which is the year of the blacklist in the movie, was president of the Screen Actors Guild, and uh, he was a friendly witness for the House on American Activities. Richard Nixon was the president in 1973, and in 1947, that was his first year in Congress, and he was on the House on American Activities. So to make a movie that was the anti-blacklist movie and you're having Reagan as the governor of California and Nixon as the president, uh, that was very interesting to me. And then many years later, uh, when I was an entertainment journalist, I interviewed Sidney Pollock, who directed the movie, right. and I asked him about the hour that was cut out of the movie, and he confirmed that for me and said it was it was terrible. It didn't work. And then a few years later, 2002, I was working as the theater reporter for a Variety, and I got to know Arthur Lawrence, who wrote the screenplay. And there had always been rumors throughout Broadway that the story of Katie and Hubble, Barbara Streisand and Robert Redford, was really the story of Arthur Lawrence and his longtime lover, Tom Hatcher. So, so I was interested in those stories.
1: Remember what I said at the top. 17 yeah. chapters. I could do 17 separate interviews. He just had touched upon something that means an awful lot to me. I have the book in my hand right now because I interviewed him. I interviewed Walter Bernstein. He wrote a memoir called Inside Out. He was one of the blacklisted writers in that time frame. This is the part of the book that fascinates me because I'm an amateur student of history and I love films, but I know what happened to Walter and that's touched upon in your book. And it's also touched upon in the backstories of a lot of the characters in your book. So let me me go to, um, and you can amplify that if you want, but I'm going to pose this question to you. Is your book a definitive account of a film that changed the rules of making movies and defined romance? Is that accurate or is that kind of a mismatch?
3: I think it's a mismatch. Uh, I think... The movie, even today, is quite unique in the romance it tells. I don't think it changed how movies are made. Uh, Movies are made differently today. Uh, One thing that shocked me when I was researching it is I couldn't believe how anyone starting out to make a movie would film an hour about the blacklist cut it out, and still have a two-hour movie. Right, That seems to be very bad planning on somebody's part. And, of course, the problem was that Arthur Lawrence wrote the screenplay. Robert Redford didn't like it and really wouldn't do the movie unless they rewrote the Hubble part. And it was clear that Arthur Lawrence didn't want to rewrite the Hubble-Gardner role, and so they brought in other writers to do that. But the film today remains unique for me, and I I think I'm speaking for other people, because it is telling the story of the Jewish girl and the shagets. Now, with Woody Allen and Larry David and Ben Stiller, we have so many uh, movies or TV shows, about the Jewish guy who falls in love with the Shiksa, but the 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 Shagetz is still kind of not a very explored uh, character in movies and and fiction, and I think that that is unique with this movie.
1: So, I've interviewed a lot of writers that have had their books optioned. And once it's optioned, there's no guarantee it's going to be made into a movie because there's something called Turnaround, which I think you know exceedingly well. And I do know Nelson DeMille. It took many, many years for the general's daughter to be made. They went through three lead actors. Finally, they got John Travolta. So what I didn't know reading this book, that this movie is based on Lorenz's novel a year or two before. So how did the novel translate So the movie, you touched upon that. There were a lot of rewrites, but he wrote the book. So he was invested in making this movie. So what happened between writing the book, having the book published, I don't think it was well received, and ultimately the battle to get this movie made?
3: Well, it was a very unusual circumstance with that novel that the first thing he wrote was a 100-page or 125-page treatment and it was a very detailed treatment. I mean, generally a treatment will be 10, 20 pages. Uh, but he wrote 125. And so, they, and he had conceived of it as a screenplay first. And then it was while he was writing the screenplay, he also wrote the novel. Uh, and it is interesting to read the novel because you kind of get an idea of what he envisioned the movie to be. But it's not as though it was a novel and then he adapted the novel into a screenplay. the, The idea of the movie came about because the producer, Ray Stark, who had produced Funny Girl on Broadway and the movie wanted to do or he had Streisand under a four picture contract and he wanted to do another picture with her. And so he went to Arthur Lawrence, who had directed her and her Broadway debut in I Can Get It For You Wholesale, and said, Write something for Barbara Streisand. And this is what he came up with. But it was originally conceived of as a movie. And concurrently with his finishing the screenplay, he also wrote the novel. And if you've read the novel, it reads like a screenplay, it doesn't read like a novel.
1: So, what I want to do right now is I want to give the subtitle to the book the way they were. Subtitle is How Epic Battles and Bruised Egos Brought a Classic Hollywood Love Story to the Screen. Once again, this is just my observation. This book is really about my observation. Relationships. Streisand, Redford, their characters, Katie and Hubble. But more interesting, beyond that, Arthur Lorenz and Tom Hatcher. And then the relationship between Lorenz, Ray Stark, and Sidney Pollack. That is almost at the heart of the novel, bruised egos, the battles going back and forth, the tugs and the pulls. I found that so interesting how you portrayed that in terms of the inside look at the making of the movie.
3: Well, I think each chapter I named after two people or a person and a character. So one chapter is Sidney Pollock and Arthur Lawrence and then another chapter is – Ray Stark and Ryan O'Neill, who he wanted to play Hubble. Uh, And so that's kind of the way that I structured the book. But yeah, it was. It was a lot of a lot of fighting. And it was interesting to me because I felt that I was dealing with five very smart people and I could see their side of things. even when they got into these huge arguments with each other over the movie with Arthur Lawrence. I think he was particularly hurt because it was his story. And when I interviewed him, I interviewed him many times when I was a theater reporter at Variety, but I did ask him once, well, were you really writing about yourself and Tom Hatcher? And he didn't What he said was, I was writing about myself in college as a political radical, and I was writing about being blacklisted in Hollywood. Uh, So the story was very personal to him. Uh, I don't think that the Hubble character was necessarily Tom Hatcher, but his relationship to Tom Hatcher certainly inspired it because Arthur Lawrence, being Jewish throughout his life, was a, was attracted to very, very gorgeous Gentile men, from Farley Granger, who was a movie star, right. and who he met on the set of Rope, which is an Albert Hitchcock movie, that Arthur Lawrence wrote, to a number of other men that he had affairs with, and then with, with Tom Hatcher. So that his attraction... To these gorgeous Gentile men, I think was an inspiration for that character.
1: So, Robert, for the fans of movie making and getting an inside look, correct me if I'm wrong. The film director, David Lean, said if a script contains five great scenes, it would be a success. Did this movie have five great scenes? <sighs>
3: Well, Barbara Streisand certainly thought so, and she had said that. Uh, that David Lean had said a few and she counted five, and of course all of those five scenes were her scenes. So, <laughs> uh, I, I think there are five great scenes. I mean, I think the movie delivers, uh, but it delivers more for certain audiences rather than other audiences. One of the interviews I particularly wanted to do was with John Burnett, who edited the movie. And John Burnett said something very interesting to me. He says, when, when we were editing it, we realized that we could get rid of the blacklist because it didn't make any difference if we told the story of the blacklist. All that mattered is that Katie, the Barbara Streisand character, had a cause. In college, it was Franco in Spain. In the 40s, it was the blacklist. And in the 50s, at the very end of the movie, it's Ban the Bomb. He also told me something else very interesting. He said, you know, whenever people ask me what I did for a career and I tell them I was a film editor and I give them my resume, he said, men invariably answer, I didn't like that movie, but it's my wife's favorite movie.
1: So let's go back to the relationship between Pollock and Lorraine. What was Pollock's vision for the film and version and what was author's vision and version for the film? I think there in some senses they were diametrically, diametrically opposed.
3: I felt, having done a, a research, and I went to the Library of Congress, which is where all of Arthur Lawrence's papers were kept, and there were all sorts of memos. And then I went to the Academy Library in Beverly Hills, and that's where all of the uh, Ray Stark and Sidney Pollack were. Uh, Pollock really saw it as a tragedy that these two people who fell in, deeply in love uh, broke up because of their personalities did not allow them to stay together. So it was a tragedy. There was a flaw in the relationship. And basically it was that they were both trying to too hard. He was, you know, she was, you know, trying to give up her politics. uh, And then she realizes that she made a mistake giving up her politics. Arthur Lawrence saw it more as a melodrama, that they were a couple that was made for each other, even though they were very different, and the blacklist ruined their marriage. And it was a melodrama.
1: So how would you describe, and this is why people have to go to the book, but I'll do broad strokes, the chemistry between Streisand and Redford um, didn't know each other maybe by reputation, but they say something that the camera loves you. Well, the camera always loved Robert Redford. Streisand was a little you know more about how do I look? What's my right? What's my good side? Although Stre- uh, Redford had moles on his face too, so he was aware. But Robert Redford was a striking man at that age. He's still a very handsome man, but the, the eyes, the blonde hair. I imagine everybody went right to him, especially his blue eyes. So how was the chemistry between these two iconic actors and entertainers?
3: Well, one thing Arthur Lawrence said, and he repeated something that Catherine Hepburn said about Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. And Catherine Hepburn had said, Fred Astaire gives her class and Ginger Rogers gives him sex. And Arthur Lawrence said that about Streisand and Redford, that Redford gave Streisand class and Streisand gave him sex, which is very interesting because he's the one who's considered the conventionally attractive one. Right. And she was always the one who was, you know, kind of the ugly duckling or whatever, or the Cinderella. So, but that is, although I do have to say that, um, Certainly, Robert Redford has a lot more sex appeal than Fred Astaire ever had. I think Barbara Streisand has a lot more class than Ginger Rogers ever had. But I think that was their, their chemistry.
1: So when I was reading your book, Prepare for the Interview, I usually take a break to listen to some music. I found the original concert, the Bonsor concert from New York City. And I listened to over and over again, Cry Me a River. And you could see the impact Streisand has. At that point, she had probably been on Broadway, but did they take a gamble on her as being an actress? Because as a singer, to this day, she is so powerful. Was it a gamble, in a sense, bringing her into this project in terms of being able to carry her character and also to work with Redford?
3: well Redford didn't want to work with her because he didn't feel that she was te- this was her fifth movie I think but she'd never been tested as a dramatic actor and he didn't want to work with her for that reason uh, and he didn't want to work with her because she controlled things he, she would end up directing the picture but mainly he didn't want to do it because he thought that the Hubble character was a Ken doll uh, but uh as, as soon as, as Streisand said yes to this project, there was no doubt that they were going to make it. Uh, the only question that really arose uh, was whether Redford was going to do it or not. And they were in, I think it was June, and, he still, and they had to start filming in August, and he hadn't said yes yet. But, but mainly the, the, the big jump with Streisand is that it was a big dramatic role and Redford didn't think she could do it. Now, Sidney Pollack, who had taught acting, with Sandy Meisner. Sandy Meisner was one of the, you know, helped bring Stanislavski's The Method to New York City, along with Lee Strasberg. Uh, so he was an accomplished acting teacher, thought that Streisand could do it. And But it was really up to Sidney Pollack, who was very friendly with Redford, who had directed movies with him who really had to talk him into it and redford told me the reason he did the movie and ultimately signed on is because Sidney pollack assured him that they would get the hubble character to a place that he not only could play it but he wanted to play it
1: now how much power did both of these actors have in terms of the script and the scene Streisand is a force of nature you know, she's making 11, 11 o'clock calls to Pollock, I believe, and just late at night, this talking about, talking about that. Redford's a little different. He's a little more hands off. But both of them are very powerful. So did they have input in terms of shaping their roles and overall the movie?
3: Well, certainly with the Hubble character, that is the reason – Arthur Lawrence was not delivering what Redford and Pollock wanted for that role. And so that's why he was fired from the movie. And they brought in other writers. And uh, Redford wanted him to be more active. Uh, He thought that he was a Kendall. He was a reactive character. So in that way... And also, Redford at that particular point in 1972 wasn't playing supporting characters. I mean, one of the things I couldn't figure out is that initially, Arthur Lawrence wanted Robert Redford in the role. He said, oh, he'd be perfect for it. But it was originally conceived of as a very supporting role. In the novel, it's a supporting character. Robert Redford didn't play supporting characters in 1972, so I don't know what Arthur Lawrence was was thinking of that Robert Redford was going to play this role. Streisand's influence, she loved the script from the beginning. She and Ray Stark and Sidney Pollack read the 125-page treatment that Lawrence had written, and they all loved it, particularly Streisand. The influence she had is that there were so many rewrites that she was the one who brought back lines that Lawrence had written. But I was surprised how really little influence she had in the end because there were two scenes that were cut out of the movie between a Friday night preview in San Francisco and a Saturday night preview. Eleven minutes were cut out, and they were two of her favorite scenes. And I was surprised that she didn't have the clout to put those scenes back in the movie. And to this day, she is trying to get those two scenes put back into the movie.
1: So in these days, when there's uh, love scenes in movies, they bring an intimacy coordinator in, whether it's movies or television. Were there any qualms between Redford and Streisand about doing the love scenes? And did they have input into those?
3: Well, they certainly didn't have an intimacy coordinator. Uh, I'm a little surprised by it because if you look at the scene, one thing that Ray Stark was insistent on, that there not even be much of a suggestion of nudity. Uh, So I think you see her at one point take off her blouse, and so you see some bare shoulders, and then she gets under the covers of the bed, and he's bare-chested, and then he rolls on top of her and it's not even sure that they're actually having sex. He kisses her on the neck, just as he does in the novel, and then he falls asleep on top of her, and she says, Hubble, it's Katie. You know, it's Katie. That took two days to film, and one of the reasons it took two days to film is that Streisand, who had a crush on Redford, asked for take after take after take. And finally, Redford gave a look at Sidney Pollack. I've had enough.
1: So there's a lot of stuff in here. We, We can go back to the scenes of some classic scenes, but there's a scene in the book that speaks to Redford as a director. It wasn't the director of the film, but I believe there's a scene where it involves tying her shoes and it's another scenes where he tells her to look down and look up. He's intuitively directing her, even though he's not the director of the film. That's, that was fascinating. Just, that's a little moment, but that was a really fascinating take on your part.
3: Well, that was something that I got from the actor James Woods in the interview that I did with him. Uh, He played Frankie McVeigh, and if you know the college sequences in the movie, he is her communist comrade. And he had talked about that there was a restaurant scene, and he had told Streisand after the first take, he said, you know, if you look down and then up, it will make you much more vulnerable. And it was James Woods who said, you know, this was years before he made Ordinary People. Uh, And he was very surprised at how good Redford was at directing another actor. And I think in the other scene you're talking about where he ties her shoe, he added a little pat to it. And it was Streisand who said that that little pat kind of made all the difference. Now, the little pat and the tying of the shoes was not something Arthur Lawrence wrote in that scene on the Sidewalk Cafe, and Arthur Lawrence hated it.
1: So, we got a few minutes left. I do want to touch upon one of the classic scenes. They're going back and forth between New York City and California, now back in New York City. And shooting a film in New York City can be very, very difficult. The scene is in front of the plaza. Is this the scene where she sees him after five years have passed and she brushes his hair? Is that the scene? Is that one of the classic scenes where he reaches up and touches his hair?
2: It
3: is. uh, And it was a gesture that Streisand came up with, that she wanted something that could be repeated throughout the movie. And in the original script, there was a line where she brushes his hair aside and he says, gray. And I noticed in the script, the word gray was cut out. Uh, because I guess Robert Redford didn't want his character <laughs> to to have aged. The other thing that's very interesting to me about that is, and this is one of the one of the ways in which Streisand did have some control. She fought with Pollock on an airplane ride from Los Angeles to New York because that was the last thing they they filmed and. Katie character says to Hubble during that scene, call me so you can meet your daughter and my husband. And she says, David X. Cohen. And and he, and Redford says, Hubble says, what's the X for? And she says, it's the only one in the book. That whole David X. Cohen thing is something that strike that was taken out of the script and Streisand had to fight for again. And I think it's very important because it shows that she made a mistake as this political Jewish person falling in love with the vapid Shagetz and that she had learned from her mistake. And when she remarried, it was with David X. Cohen, a Jewish person, a
1: Jewish man. So for film students, as well as you, will there ever be a director's cut on this movie?
3: Well, I interviewed um, Sidney Pollack in 1995 and he said, you know, an hour of the movie was cut out and it was about the blacklist and it was bad. And he says, it doesn't work. He says, there will not be a director's cut. The movie is the director's cut. And I interviewed his two daughters and they seemed ambivalent about it. And they had said that Streisand had invited him, them to her home and had discussed to them putting these two scenes back into the movie but I don't think that they have allowed, that the the Sidney Pollack estate has allowed uh, Streisand to put back in those two scenes but if you want to see them you can buy the DVD version the 25th anniversary DVD version of The Way We Were and there is a special feature called Looking Back and you can see the 11 minutes that were cut out from the Friday night in San Francisco preview to the Saturday night preview. And those lost scenes of 11 minutes, but the whole hour of the blacklist, that, that's gone.
1: So I'm going to end segment two with the way I ended segment one and ask you, I know you've been doing, I hope you've been doing a lot of interviews for this book. <laughs> so in the course of doing all these interviews or the interviews to come, Nostradamus, will there be a question that hasn't been asked of you that should be asked?
3: Well, there is a little regret I have about the book because the research was done um, during the pandemic. And so a lot of libraries were closed. Uh, I remember I went to the Academy Library in Beverly Hills and I had reserved two days finally when the pandemic was over. And even then, I got to spend one day at the Academy Library. And then the second day, I got an email, the library is closed because of COVID. And thank God I had done my major research. But this is getting off and really into a subject that we didn't discuss much. But Arthur Lawrence had always said that he was blacklisted. And I found a number of things that really kind of disprove that. And they are original reporting that is in the book. But I wish I would have really gotten the movie that he was working on with Jerome Robbins, who, of course, was a major choreographer and director who was momentarily blacklisted and did give names to HUAC and what movie they were working on at MGM. And I wasn't able to go through all that, but there was kind of definitively that Arthur Lawrence was not blacklisted. And he this was another myth-making on Arthur Lawrence's part.
1: Robert, thank you so much. The book is called The Way They Were, How Epic Battles and Bruised Egos Brought a Classic Hollywood Love Story to the Screen. Robert Hoffler, thank you so much. Thank you. All right, I want to thank once again Robert and Brownwin. Till next time, I'm Larry Davidson. Bye-bye.
0: The Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Crisifaro sound editors and engineer Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at larrydavidsonsproductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all.